Thank you so much to my amazing Patreon subscribers, Lynn, David, Elise, Margaret, Nela, Mike, Robbie, and Allison. Your support and encouragement are what keeps me going. Welcome back to my relaxing literature podcast. If you are enjoying this podcast, please remember to subscribe, rate, and review on your podcast platform of choice. Tonight, we're continuing our reading of The Adventures of Tom Sawyer by Mark Twain. Chapter 14 When Tom awoke in the morning, he wondered where he was. He sat up and rubbed his eyes and looked around. Then he comprehended. It was the cool gray dawn, and there was a delicious sense of repose and peace in the deep, pervading calm and silence of the woods. Not a leaf stirred, not a sound obtruded upon great nature's meditation. Beaded dewdrops stood upon the leaves and grasses, a white layer of ashes covered the fire, and a thin blue breath of smoke rose straight into the air. Joe and Huck still slept. Now far away in the woods a bird called. Another answered. Presently the hammering of a woodpecker was heard. Gradually the cool, dim gray of the morning widened, and as gradually sounds multiplied and life manifested itself. The marvel of nature shaking off sleep and going to work unfolded itself to the musing boy. A little green worm came crawling over a dewy leaf, lifting two-thirds of his body into the air from time to time and sniffing around. Then proceeding again, for he was measuring, Tom said, and when the worm approached him of its own accord, he sat as still as a stone, with his hopes rising and falling by turns, as the creature still came toward him, or seemed inclined to go elsewhere. And when at last it considered a painful moment, with its curved body in the air, and then came decisively down upon Tom's leg, and began a journey over him, his whole heart was glad. For that meant he was going to have a new suit of clothes, without the shadow of a doubt, a gaudy, piratical uniform. Now a procession of ants appeared from nowhere in particular, and went about their labors. One struggled manfully by with a dead spider five times as big as itself in its arms, and lugged it straight up a tree trunk. A brown-spotted ladybug climbed the dizzy height of a grass blade, and Tom bent down close to it and said, Ladybug, ladybug, fly away home, your house is on fire, your children's alone. And she took wing and went off to see about it, which did not surprise the boy, for he knew of old that this insect was credulous about conflagrations, and had practiced upon its simplicity more than once. A tumblebug came next, heaving sturdily at its ball and Tom touched the creature to see it shut its legs against its body and pretend to be dead. 
The birds were fairly rioting by this time. A catbird, the northern mocker, lit in a tree over Tom's head and trilled out her imitations of her neighbors in a rapture of enjoyment. Then a shrill jay swept down, a flash of blue flame, and stopped on a twig almost within the boy's reach, cocked his head to one side, and eyed the strangers with a consuming curiosity. A gray squirrel and a big fellow of the fox kind came scurrying along, sitting up at intervals to inspect and chatter at the boys, for the wild things had probably never seen a human being before, and scarcely knew whether to be afraid or not. All nature was wide awake and stirring now. Long lances of sunlight pierced down through the dense foliage far and near, and a few butterflies came fluttering upon the scene. Tom stirred up the other pirates, and they all clattered away with a shout, and in a minute or two were stripped and chasing after and tumbling over each other in the shallow, limpid water of the white sandbar. They felt no longing for the little village sleeping in the distance beyond the majestic waste of water. A vagrant current or a slight rise in the river had carried off their raft, but this only gratified them, since its going was something like a burning the bridge between them and civilization. They came back to camp wonderfully refreshed, glad-hearted, and ravenous, and they soon had the campfire blazing up again. Huck found a spring of clear, cold water close by, and the boys made cups of broad oak or hickory leaves, and felt that water, sweetened with such a wildwood charm as that, would be a good enough substitute for coffee. While Joe was slicing bacon for breakfast, Tom and Huck asked him to hold on a minute. They stepped to a promising nook in the river bank and threw in their lines. Almost immediately they had their reward. Joe had not had time to get impatient before they were back again with some handsome bass, a couple of sunperch, and a small catfish, provisions enough for quite a family. They fried the fish with the bacon and were astonished, for no fish had ever seemed so delicious before. They did not know that the quicker a freshwater fish is on the fire after he is caught, the better he is, and they reflected little upon what a sauce open-air sleeping, open-air exercise, bathing, and a large ingredient of hunger make, too. They lay around in the shade after breakfast while Huck had a smoke, and then they went off through the woods on an exploring expedition. They tramped gaily along over decaying logs, through tangled underbrush, among solemn monarchs of the forest, hung from their crowns to the ground with a drooping regalia of grapevines. Now and then they came upon snug nooks carpeted with grass and jeweled with flowers. They found plenty of things to be delighted with, but nothing to be astonished at. They discovered that the island was about three miles long and a quarter of a mile wide, and that the shore it lay closest to was only separated from it by a narrow channel hardly two hundred yards wide. They took a swim about every hour, so it was close upon the middle of the afternoon when they got back to camp. They were too hungry to stop to fish, but they fared sumptuously upon cold ham, and then threw themselves down in the shade to talk. 
but the talk soon began to drag and then died. The stillness, the solemnity that brooded in the woods, and the sense of loneliness began to tell upon the spirits of the boys. They fell to thinking. A sort of undefined longing crept upon them. This took dim shape presently. It was budding homesickness. Even Finn the red-handed was dreaming of his doorsteps and empty hogsheads, but they were all ashamed of their weakness, and none was brave enough to speak his thought. For some time now the boys had been dully conscious of a peculiar sound in the distance, just as one sometimes is of the ticking of a clock, which he takes no distinct note of. But now this mysterious sound became more pronounced and forced a recognition. The boys started, glanced at each other, and then assumed a listening attitude. There was a long silence, profound and unbroken, and then a deep, sullen boom came floating down out of the distance. "'What is it?' exclaimed Joe under his breath. "'I wonder,' said Tom in a whisper. "'Tain't thunder,' said Huckleberry in an awed tone, "'because thunder—' "'Hark,' said Tom. "'Listen, don't talk.' They waited a time that seemed an age, and then the same muffled boom troubled the solemn hush. "'Let's go and see.' They sprang to their feet and hurried to the shore toward the town. They parted the bushes on the bank and peered out over the water. The little steam ferry boat was about a mile below the village, drifting with the current. Her broad deck seemed crowded with people. There were a great many skiffs rowing about or floating with the stream in the neighborhood of the ferry boat, but the boys could not determine what the men in them were doing. Presently a great jet of white smoke burst from the ferry boat's side, and as it expanded and rose in a lazy cloud, that same dull throb of sound was borne to the listeners again. "'I know now,' exclaimed Tom. "'Somebody's drowned.' "'That's it,' said Huck. "'They done that last summer, when Bill Turner got drowned. "'They shoot a cannon over the water, and that makes him come up to the top. "'Yes,' And they take loaves of bread and put quicksilver in them and set them afloat. And wherever there's anybody that's drowned, they'll float right there and stop. Yes, I've heard about that, said Joe. I wonder what makes the bread do that. Oh, it ain't the bread so much, said Tom. I reckon it's mostly what they say over it before they start out. But they don't say anything over it, said Huck. I've seen them, and they don't. Well, that's funny, said Tom. But maybe they say it to themselves. Of course they do. Anybody might know that. The other boys agreed that there was a reason in what Tom said, because an ignorant lump of bread, uninstructed by an incantation, could not be expected to act very intelligently when set upon an errand of such gravity. By jings, I wish I was over there now, said Joe. I do too, said Huck. I'd give heaps to know who it is. The boys still listened and watched. Presently a revealing thought flashed through Tom's mind, and he exclaimed, 
boys. I know who's drowned. It's us. They felt like heroes in an instant. Here was a gorgeous triumph. They were missed. They were mourned. Hearts were breaking on their account. Tears were being shed. Accusing memories and kindness to these poor lost lads were rising up, and unavailing regrets and remorse were being indulged. And best of all, the departed were the talk of the whole town, and the envy of all the boys, as far as this dazzling notoriety was concerned. This was fine. It was worth while to be a pirate after all. As twilight drew on, the ferry boat went back to her accustomed business, and the skiffs disappeared. The pirates returned to camp. They were jubilant with vanity over their new grandeur and the illustrious trouble they were making. They caught fish, cooked supper, and ate it, and then fell to guessing at what the village was thinking and saying about them. And the pictures they drew of the public distress on their account were gratifying to look upon, from their point of view. But when the shadows of night closed them in, they gradually ceased to talk. And sat gazing into the fire, with their minds evidently wandering elsewhere. The excitement was gone now, and Tom and Joe could not keep back thoughts of certain persons at home, who were not enjoying this fine frolic as much as they were. Misgivings came, and they grew troubled and unhappy. A sigh or two escaped unawares. By and by, Joe timidly ventured upon a roundabout. Feeler as to how the others might look upon a return to civilization, not right now, but Tom withered him with derision. Huck, being uncommitted as yet, joined in with Tom, and the waverer quickly explained, and was glad to get out of the scrape with as little taint of chicken-hearted homesickness clinging to his garments as he could. Mutiny was effectually laid to rest for the moment. As the night deepened, Huck began to nod and presently to snore. Joe followed next. Tom lay upon his elbow, motionless for some time, watching the two intently. At last, he got up cautiously on his knees, and went searching among the grass and the flickering reflections flung by the campfire. He picked up and inspected several large semi-cylinders of the thin white bark of a sycamore. And finally chose two which seemed to suit him. Then he knelt by the fire and painfully wrote something upon each of these with his red keel. One he rolled up and put in his jacket pocket, and the other he put in Joe's hat, and removed it to a little distance from the owner. And he also put into the hat certain schoolboy treasures of almost inestimable value. Among them, a lump of chalk, an India rubber ball, three fish hooks, and one of that kind of marbles known as a sure enough crystal. Then he tiptoed his way cautiously among the trees till he felt that he was out of hearing, and straightway broke into a keen run in the direction of the sandbar. Chapter Fifteen. A few minutes later, Tom was in the shoal water of the bar, wading towards the Illinois shore. Before the depth reached his middle, he was halfway over. The current would permit no more wading now, 
so he struck out confidently to swim the remaining hundred yards. He swam, quartering upstream, but still was swept downward rather faster than he had expected. However, he reached the shore finally and drifted along till he found a low place and drew himself out. He put his hand on his jacket pocket, found his piece of bark safe, and then struck through the woods following the shore with streaming garments. Shortly before ten o'clock he came out into an open place opposite the village and saw the ferry boat lying in the shadow of the trees and the high bank. Everything was quiet under the blinking stars. He crept down the bank, watching with all his eyes, slipped into the water, swam three or four strokes, and climbed into the skiff that did yawl duty at the boat's stern. He laid himself down under the thwarts and waited, panting. Presently the cracked bell tapped, and a voice gave the order to cast off. A minute or two later the skiff's head was standing high up against the boat's swell, and the voyage had begun. Tom felt happy in his success, for he knew it was the boat's last trip for the night. At the end of a long twelve or fifteen minutes the wheel stopped, and Tom slipped overboard and swam ashore in the dusk, landing fifty yards downstream out of danger of possible stragglers. He flew along unfrequented alleys and shortly found himself at his aunt's back fence. He climbed over, approached the L, and looked in at the living room window, for a light was burning there. There sat Aunt Polly, Sid, Mary, and Joe Harper's mother grouped together talking. They were by the bed, and the bed was between them and the door. Tom went to the door and began softly to lift the latch. Then he pressed gently, and the door yielded a crack. He continued pushing cautiously, and quaking every time it creaked, till he judged he might squeeze through on his knees, so he put his head through and began warily. "'What makes the candle blow so?' said Aunt Polly. Tom hurried up. "'Why, the door's open, I believe. Why, of course it is. No end of strange things now.' Go along and shut it, Sid. Tom disappeared under the bed just in time. He lay and breathed himself for a time, and then crept to where he could almost touch his aunt's foot. But as I was saying, said Aunt Polly, he weren't bad, so to say, only mischievous, only just giddy, and harem scarum, you know. He weren't any more responsible than a colt. He never meant any harm, and he was the best-hearted boy that ever was. And she began to cry. It was just so with my Joe, always full of his devilment and up to every kind of mischief, but he was just as unselfish and kind as he could be, and laws blessed me to think I went and whipped him for taking that cream, never once recollecting that I throwed it out myself because it was sour, and I never to see him again in this world, Never, 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 poor abused boy. And Mrs. Harper sobbed as if her heart would break. I hope Tom's better off where he is, said Sid. But if he'd been better in some ways... Sid! Tom felt the glare of the old lady's eye, though he could not see it. Not a word against my Tom, now that he's gone. God'll take care of him. Never you trouble yourself, sir. 
Oh, Mrs. Harper, I don't know how to give him up. I don't know how to give him up. He was such a comfort to me, although he tormented my old heart out of me most. The Lord giveth, and the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. But it's so hard. Oh, it's so hard. Only last Saturday my Joe busted a firecracker right under my nose, and I knocked him sprawling. Little did I know then, how soon. Oh, if it was to do it over again, I'd hug him and bless him for it. Yes, 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 I know just how you feel, Mrs. Harper. I know just exactly how you feel. No longer ago than yesterday noon, my Tom took and filled the cat full of painkiller, and I think the creature would tear the house down. And God forgive me, I cracked Tom's head with my thimble, poor boy, poor dead boy. But he's out of all his troubles now, and the last words I ever heard him say was to reproach. But this memory was too much for the old lady, and she broke entirely down. Tom was snuffling now himself, and more pity of himself than anyone else. He could hear Mary crying and putting in a kindly word for him from time to time. He began to have a nobler opinion of himself than ever before. Still, he was sufficiently touched by his aunt's grief to long to rush out from under the bed and overwhelm her with joy, and the theatrical gorgeousness of the thing appealed strongly to his nature too, but he resisted and lay still. He went on listening and gathered by odds and ends that it was conjectured at first that the boys had got drowned while taking a swim, then the small raft had been missed. Next, certain boys said the missing lads had promised that the village should hear something soon. The wise heads had put this and that together and decided that the lads had gone off on the raft and would turn up at the next town below presently. But toward noon the raft had been found, lodged against the Missouri shore of some five or six miles below the village, and then hope perished. They must be drowned, else hunger would have driven them home by nightfall if not sooner. It was believed that the search for the bodies had been a fruitless effort, merely because the drowning must have occurred in mid-channel, since the boys, being good swimmers, would otherwise have escaped to shore. This Wednesday night, if the bodies continued missing until Sunday, all hope would be given over, and the funerals would be preached on that morning. Tom shuddered. Mrs. Harper gave a sobbing good night and turned to go. Then, with a mutual impulse, the two bereaved women flung themselves into each other's arms and had a good, consoling cry, and then parted. Aunt Polly was tender far beyond her wont in her good night to Sid and Mary. Sid snuffled a bit, and Mary went off crying with all her heart. Aunt Polly knelt down and prayed for Tom so touchingly, so appealingly, and with such measureless love in her words and her old trembling voice that he was weltering in tears again long before she was through. He had to keep still long after she went to bed, for she kept making broken-hearted ejaculations from time to time, tossing unrestfully and turning over, but at last she was still only moaning a little in her sleep. Now the boy stole out, rose gradually by the bedside, shaded the candlelight with his hand, and stood regarding her. His heart was full of pity for her. He took out his sycamore scroll and placed it by the candle. 
but something occurred to him, and he lingered, considering. His face lighted with a happy solution of his thought. He put the bark hastily in his pocket. Then he bent over and kissed the faded lips, and straightway made his stealthy exit, latching the door behind him. He threaded his way back to the ferry landing, found nobody at large there, and walked boldly on board the boat, for he knew she was tenantless, except that there was a watchman who always turned in and slept like a graven image. He untied the skiff at the stern, slipped into it, and was soon rowing cautiously upstream. When he had pulled a mile above the village, he started quartering across and bent himself stoutly to his work. He hit the landing on the other side neatly, for this was a familiar bit of work to him. He was moved to capture the skiff, arguing that it might be considered a ship, and therefore legitimate prey for a pirate, but he knew a thorough search would be made for it, and that might end in revelations. So he stepped ashore and entered the woods. He sat down and took a long rest, torturing himself meanwhile to keep awake, and then started wearily down the home stretch. The night was far spent. It was broad daylight before he found himself fairly abreast the island bar. He rested again until the sun was well up, and gliding the great river with its splendor, and then he plunged into the stream. A little later he paused, dripping upon the threshold of the camp, and heard Joe say, No, Tom's true blue, Huck, and he'll come back. He won't desert. He knows that would be a disgrace to a pirate, and Tom's too proud for that sort of thing. He's up to something or other. Now, I wonder what. Well, the things is ours anyway, ain't they? Pretty near, but not yet, Huck. The writing says they are if he ain't back here to breakfast. Which he is, exclaimed Tom with fine dramatic effect, stepping grandly into the camp. A sumptuous breakfast of bacon and fish was shortly provided, and as the boys set to work upon it, Tom recounted and adorned his adventures. They were a vain and boastful company of heroes when the tale was done. Then Tom hid himself away in a shady nook to sleep till noon, and the other pirates got ready to fish and explore. Thank you so much for joining me for another relaxing literature podcast. If you are enjoying this podcast, please consider supporting to help me improve the quality. You can find me at patreon.com forward slash relaxing literature, along with a list of the many benefits you'll receive for being a patron at only $5 a month. You can also support me by rating, subscribing, and reviewing at your podcast platform of choice. Please also find me on Instagram at relaxing literature or on Twitter at relaxing lit A-S-M-R to leave your comments, questions, or suggestions on what you'd like me to read next. Thank you so much for listening.